Welcome to YDHTY Summer Throwback Edition. Hope those of you listening in the United States had a great fourth and hope you're enjoying July thus far. Now, for the month of July, Adam and I are pulling some of our favorite episodes from the last three years that also happen to intersect with some of the topics that we've been discussing in recent months. Now, we've gone through a lot in terms of material over the last couple of months, and we've really started to drill down into some of the economic drivers behind the state of the world today. And the episode that I've teed up for you today is the first one where we started to touch on the subject. This goes all the way back to June 25th, 2020. The Data Monk and I were trapped in our respective houses in the height of COVID, and the Data Monk raised the question, is America a centrally planned economy? And what he meant by that is that we preach the love of free markets in this country. We love free markets, yet a lot of the economic drivers of that free market are centrally planned via the central bank. It is a fascinating topic he raises, and he draws some correlation between late-stage capitalism and late-stage communism, which I found really interesting. And given what we've been talking about recently in terms of reserve currencies, interest rates, their impact on political polarization, I found this especially relevant. Hope you enjoy it. We'll be back next week with another Throwback Thursday edition that builds on this subject and continue to enjoy the summer, stay hydrated, wear sunscreen, all that good stuff. In a world full of socio-political issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation from Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy. This is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Sally. Sally, 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 Sally. Welcome to episode 41. Subtract six from that to episode 47. Add six, then add another six. My math isn't that great tonight. Episode 47 of You Don't Have to Yell, the only podcast clinically proven to treat your moderate to severe plaque psoriasis. It's the bad boy of nonpartisan political podcasting here. And this week, the Data Monkey joins me for a bong-worthy episode containing one of the more mind-bendingly interesting theories on the U.S. economy to date. Another note ahead of time. I totally screw up the audio settings at the beginning. We try to make perfect, but we usually make you don't have to yell. And with that out of the way, enjoy. The Freeform Father's Day episode. I know. Command. I know. That's uh, this it. Is, this is, you know, in a, I've set the bar pretty low for the amount of research I've usually done, but, you know, this is even less. <laughs> so. All right. Well, <laughs> hey, good news. I've got you beat because <laughs> I've done nothing. Let's go on to another long-term problem that we referenced earlier and something that you and I chatted about that I found super interesting. And I'm going to preface this with the warning that this is something you kind of just started rolling around in your head. And yeah, this is definitely kind of an unfinished thought. I mean, there is some data around some of it, but I have yeah. to do some, you have to do some sort of imaginary uh, extrapolation around things to sort of get comfortable with uh, 
you know, so it's definitely more conceptual. Um, exactly. So and, you and, being, and, and it definitely mm-hmm. qualifies under the the you know how do I know the color blue to you is the color blue to me kind of deep <laughs> deep thought. Um, yeah. So so effectively, what we're going to do is we're not going to be sure about this, but we're gonna we're gonna engage in a little speculation, which is not why I have you on the show. Um, and I'm just gonna ask you to totally defeat like kind of fight your purpose for being here, um, which is generally to provide like data-backed analysis as to why things are the way they are. But your whole thing revolves around the U.S. dollar and revolves around the role of the central banks. And I'll stop there. And do yeah. you just want to roll into it from there? Well, yeah. all right. So it came from sort of, you know, this is, as you you were joking, this, is, this comes from almost like a little bit of a, uh, you know, think about things in a big big picture and start to get it almost in an altered state kind of way. So, you know, you get to take your, take your bong hit <laughs> and then, and then, and then ask the question like, Whoa, like what if late stage capitalism is actually ends up in the same place as communism, right? Like, which is that every time. Communism, yeah, like, whoa. <laughs> like, um, because when we, people use this term late stage capitalism a lot, and, and I guess I was kind of trying to unpack like, why we think that. And we think that because we, we see such distortions taking place in the, um, you know, in, in the, in the U S which is probably the most, is obviously the most advanced theoretical example of, of, a um, a capitalist society. And it's just interesting to see like the, the inequality, like the rise in inequality, wealth inequality, all these things that, that you know, we seem to be struggling with for, for classic uh, economists. And so people call this sort of the vestiges of the last, the last, you know, gasp of we'll quote late stage capitalism. But then you look at also communist countries and every place it's communism has sort of theoretically been tried. And what happened, let's step away from the ideology and just look at what ends up happening. Right. And more often than not, you end up with a situation like even though they're after an egalitarian outlook, like by embracing something like communism, it generally ends up with a pretty oligarchical, like, you know, unequal wealth distribution anyway, right? So I, I always used to, like, I, I remember having this conversation with a mutual friend of ours at one point and, and I said, like, you know, look, here's the thing, in my view, between sort of capitalist, a capitalist view of things and a um, free market kind of view of things and a communist view of things. You haven't changed human nature at all by moving from one system to another. All you've really changed is sort of the currency, right? Like instead mm-hmm. of things being in an open marketplace where all the bad acts are done in the open, we now move to you know a place where all the bad acts are done behind closed doors, where no one has access to what's happening, right? Like mm-hmm. so, uh, to me, like uh, the the system I'd rather like. You know, the only system that ends up being, in my mind, the one that I think is probably the best is the one where they stab you in the front, not the one where they stab you in the back. Sure. You know, and it's yeah. so, but, but, in the, but this is, and this is kind of coming back to the initial statement, you kind of get stabbed either way, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> because you, that's, that's human nature. So I just, I, I guess I've, I've been taking this view of trying to look at things from like a real, you know, take the traditional economic views or ideological political views out of it and look at it from a, just a ecological systems physics kind of view. And, and like in the U S kind of coming back to like, you know, what, are, what do we actually do? Like 
where it's a collection of networks and systems and it's, and it's flows of energy that are running through everything. Right. And, and that's mm-hmm. what moves, that's what moves things. That's what moves everything from, you know, pallets of goods from China to, to Walmart and what moves electrons around inside a data center. And no matter mm-hmm. what it's flows of energy, moving stuff and it accumulates information. And that's what, that's what we do. That's what an economy really ultimately is, right? It's accumulation mm-hmm. of knowledge and flows of energy that are, that are allowing us to reshape things the way we want them to be. So you know, let me, according- Sorry, no, go sorry. Go, no, I was going to say, let me pause there and just make sure I'm wording this correctly. So uh, the the first thesis is, of course, that the, the big difference between, uh, you know, uh, an ideal capitalist scenario or ideal, ideal capitalist uh, liberal democracy and I guess what we've considered to date sort of the standard, you know, communist system of government or oligarchic system of government, whatever you want to say is one where there is definitely some uh, predatory aspects of of the economy because that's just human nature to try and gain an edge. However, that is done in the open and it's transparent as opposed to oligarchic, which kind of does what they want in secret and you just kind of... Yeah, and, and, it, and it's or, just, or say relative, right? Because we could yeah. say I mean, there's still going to be some of that going on and we'll get to what I mean. Like what I think people are actually saying when they talk about late stage capitalism yeah. is actually what we have, what I think now, which is a bit like crony capitalism. Okay. Right, so, where we're starting to get that same oligarchical kind of behavior mm-hmm. going on amongst, you know, the cadre of sort of bankers, policymakers, technology, CEOs, like these people at the very at the very high echelon of, of wealth that I think they do actually start to have some very, you know, like some management going on, uh, you know, behind the scenes of what's actually happening here. And to get to the energy part of things too. So effectively to just illustrate this for the folks listening, let's start at the most basic level where I'm a farmer, right? And I'm a farmer and I'm growing corn. And so I go out into my field and I get into my tractor that's powered by gas that I bought. And I, I don't know what farmers do in the tractors. I ride around the field and throw seeds. I don't know. But so, so there's an expense. Sorry to anybody who listens to this. As a farmer. In the farm belt. <laughs> we just well, revealed an incredible amount of ignorance on our part, but you know, well, it's, it's yeah, we'll have you on. I've got like a piece of straw hanging out of my mouth that I'm chewing. And, and then uh, the sun's energy comes in and the corn plant, you know, through the process of photosynthesis, starts to grow, create energy, blah, blah, blah. So now we have fossil fuel energy and uh, natural solar energy creating corn, which again, we use more fossil fuels to process. And then at the same time, we're also using uh, electricity uh, in the form of that's also produced by fossil fuels uh, to uh, power the computers that are sending the message to the farmer that, hey, some dipshit in Boston who doesn't know how you grow corn wants to buy your corn to eat it. So then, you know, that results in a transfer of electronic funds, all energy derived. So ultimately, we're pumping it out of the ground. We're putting it in power plants. And yeah. and if we keep a record of that transaction, it's sitting there inside, you know, stored in a computer somewhere in a data center with constant energy needing to keep it in place. Like, okay. So these are, so it's just, it's just a reframing of everything in terms of, um, you know, that just, it's a movement of structures and, and everyone, people, it's like people moving and doing the things that they do 
creating goods, moving services, and thinking about the economy from that standpoint is that, and everything takes energy to move it, right? And so you just, just it's, it's just an energy flow and a reforming of all the sort of structures and organisms that are around us into the, with added information value that's coming from us. Take so, another hit. So this is, all right. So and, that's and like then, just a preamble to get to, like, you know, why that doesn't fit with sort of our policy responses then to these crises that we have, like in the capital okay. markets, right? Go for it. Because all we do is basically take a view that productivity will continue to, to grow at the same pace that it's done in the past, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's again, a little bit of a um, uh, reductionist view, but it's not, it's not off base, which is when we're thinking about productivity in the future, they really, most economists really just kind of take the past and extrapolate it. And there's no real thought about, you know, how you're shifting the underlying inputs to the economy such that you may not get the productivity that you've gotten in the past. And demonstrably, yeah. like we haven't, like, right. I mean, nominal GDP has been continued to slow over time. Um, productivity, you know, that was one of the conundrums of the last expansion over the last 10 years is that we just haven't really seen productivity kind of come in the same way we would have thought. And, and so what that ends up leading to is we kind of push monetary policy that drives, that's derived from this idea that we're going to continue to grow the economy at the rate we have in the past, but what if you're not, right? And so- How's productivity grow? measured? Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. How's productivity measured, by the way? Yeah, I mean, it's so it's really kind of output per, you know, per unit of labor, if you're looking at labor productivity. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's kind of really, I mean, at the most basic level, it's basically just kind of GDP per per person in a sense. So but, again, to get back to the, to the farmer, I'm a farmer, I was producing 100 ears of corn, now I'm producing 102 ears of corn. And so that's a right. 2% increase in my productivity, correct? Yeah. And the idea right. is thinking like if you, if over the last 20 years, you know, you added two years of corn every year, we're just going to assume you're going to continue to add two years of corn every Got year it. going forward. Got it. Okay. Right. Sorry. Sorry. I just yeah, want to no, make no, sure no, everybody, no. everybody gets that. I, so it's just, it's good to ask these questions this way. Yeah. Um, but anyway, my, so my, my point was only that this leads to like, but sort of, I think, and again, running monetary policy at a very high level to sort of push the economy to a theoretical kind of quote output gap when, mm-hmm. when you're delivering, you know, one ear of corn instead of two that we thought you would, well, clearly you're supposed to be back up at two per year. So let's just give them more money and maybe that will get us to grow another ear of corn, right? Yeah. You keep pushing money at the situation. And, and when maybe that's not the issue, maybe you just can't you can't really drive any input to, to make it go up, right? Maybe you're just mm-hmm. asymptotically bound in the sense that maybe it's just, it's coming up against some, um, you know, some large numbers and, and, and it's becoming just harder and harder, maybe, right? In a closed system like we live in, right? Yeah. We may imagine going to Mars and I think that's all great, but, you know, we can't even, we don't, we don't have any settlements on in Antarctica, never mind Mars. I mean, like when this, we're, you know, we're yeah. not, we're not going to like, we, we haven't, so that's not going to be a, that's going to be a, that's not going to be a positive return on invested capital endeavor, right? In the short run. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, this, this came to just this idea of like, because of this, we cause these periodic crises when something happens. And our response to this crisis has just been to, again, just expand the role of government, we we were through either you know um, federal deficits or expanding the money supply, mm-hmm. and so where it comes to is now. I was looking at you know the deficit this year is going to be anywhere from I mean 
God, it's going to be mind scrambling. I mean, we're going to be running over 20% of the economy, I think, in, in terms of what the deficit could look like. And that, you know, combined with the, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is now, you know, closing in on sort of over 40% of nominal GDP. Mm-hmm. So you just start thinking like, that's, you know, that's where the sort of the bong hit kind of question came in is like, well, it's so, and this is not that different than in, in, in the EU, the same thing. And you're getting, that's growing as a, as a percentage of their nominal GDP and Japan is sort of way ahead of us in that sense. Um, you know, they've already been going all the way to the point where Japan, the Japanese central bank has even been buying like stocks, right? So mm-hmm. they buy ETFs of stocks. Well, so at some point isn't, I mean, that, why is that fundamentally different than a communist country that owns all the, the state-owned economy yeah right. i mean because and because well, what results in sort of and this is where i think you were getting you were sort of thought it was a little trippy is because it starts to resemble the same outcome in the sense that you've, you've artificially lowered the cost of capital by sort of inflating asset prices and continuing to inflate asset prices because every time they go down they step in to buy them or in some way to sort of either or they step in to buy debt in which case helps bolster the equity price so like if they keep stepping in to do this, you're kind of pushing asset prices up, which pushes sort of the rates of return lower because they're the opposite, right? Mm-hmm. Well, then you're kind of keeping, you're, you're sort of enabling and actually encouraging, you know, more M&A, more consolidation, but you're not driving more productivity because that's, that almost creates like oligopolistic and monopolistic behaviors. And you've seen this with like almost every industry has seen, more concentration inside them, right? Like there's, you know, there's now fewer toilet paper manufacturers. There's fewer of these, like everything keeps sort of moving toward a, like large companies that generally then own a whole area. Oh well, yeah. Cause sector. cause when you don't get you, when you can't get an edge by an increase in productivity, you can't get an edge by innovation. You need to get an edge by scale, right? Yeah, that's exactly, that's exactly right. And that's your sort of your, your, yeah. So yeah. And so if you, if the, if it's tough to get nominal growth, like you can create growth through financial manipulation, right? You buy back your shares, you do M and a, you can, you know, I mean, this is the sort of the, um, in order to sort of continue driving that, but because of that, you just get more consolidation and sort of less choice over time. Mm -hmm. And that starts to look weirdly like exactly what you end up in, in centrally planned economies. Yeah. And, and that's, it's, it's interesting because, we still talk a ton about the stock market. You know, people still talk about the stock market, yet it is entirely decoupled from the lives of your average person. I mean, I don't, do you, you must know this. How many people have, how many, how many like people in the workforce, people like halfway, you know, middle-aged, halfway through their career, how many people have money saved up for retirement in the United States. Oh yeah. Yeah. So it was a bankrate.com survey. Nearly 25% of Americans have no money put aside for a rainy day and less than half have an emergency savings, uh, that's more than their credit card debt. So most Americans aren't seeing an increase in the quality of life from the increases in the stock market. And, you know, so, effectively what we have then is we have this system where where the the I, look i don't think there's an economist out there that would argue against the stimulus that paid people to stay home um but what we what we have is we have a situation now where the the benefits of actual 
let's call it economic growth or the areas of the economy that are growing are fewer and further between. So if you have your money in investable assets, you're doing great. If you don't, if you're the a person who trades, again, trades energy for money, trades time and labor for money, um, you are the value of that has continuously gone down. And, uh, and it's interesting because it dovetails really nicely with uh, last week's guest, Nathaniel Lane, who said something interesting. He said, I think we're seeing the decoupling of labor from income. You know, we are, we are seeing a situation and oddly enough, the, we're kind of getting there, but not in a method that one would argue is socially just because we're, we're getting there uh, by having a situation now where people can't like, they just, they, they don't benefit from the output in the economy or, or, or the, again, the, the trade that we would normally make for their labor is not one that's going to allow them to live. You yeah. know? Yeah. And so, and so now what happens, and I think the, again, getting back to the, to making, to the parallels with communism, we have a situation now where if you, let's say, did, did what you were supposed to do, and you had a 40 hour work week, worked, you know, took two to four weeks vacation uh, every year if you could get it, paid your bills, paid your taxes, and get to the end of the road and don't have any money saved up for retirement because you couldn't afford it. Well, then you are subject to the benevolence of those who have the money to tell you what your life is going to look like. You've lost your right of self determination. By no fault of your own, but by just doing what you're supposed to do in this system as it exists. And, and I think the, the real threat to our, or one of the real threats to our liberty uh, is, is the fact that the, the, the thing that we use to, uh, the, the, the ultimate commodity we use to survive and what we go out every day trying to get is money. And that, and the the sovereignty of that, the value of that, is not being protected in a way that benefits everybody. It seems to be protected, or it seems to be uh, managed in a way that ultimately somehow comes out with the people who own vast shares of stocks benefiting, and those who, again, are those those who accumulate wealth by trading their time for money and their labor for money are kind of left in the lurch. Am I wrong there or no? No, I mean, you're, there's a lot to unpack there, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you're directionally wrong in the sense that it, I mean, you, you can see that I mean, this is Thomas Piketty's work from, you know, I think a few years ago when he published mm-hmm. a book on inequality and it, um, it, it was always one of the ones that I sort of laughed. It's like a thousand page book, which with some incredible research in it. Right. I mean, this was like the yeah. guy went into like vaults in France to find like tax records from like 300 years ago to build these charts that had like hundred year time frames and stuff. It's like a jaw dropping level of research. And of course, you know, no one, everyone had a, a view on the book. No one actually read it because it's, <laughs> it's a doorstop, right? Like nobody bothered to actually read the yeah. book. They, they just flipped to the end, read to the, the last chapter that uh, I'm sure I'm, I'm 
um, um, you know, more than uh, 50% share that was partly the editor just being like, you have to tack on what you do about it. Cause that, you know, you can't, you can't just put this book out and not have a prescription. Like you have yeah. to actually have the last chapter has to explain what you would do about it. So, so he kind of has this throwaway chapter at the end about like, yeah, I guess a wealth tax or something like, you know, I mean, it's sort of this. And of course everybody just jumped right on that and was like, Oh, he's calling for a wealth tax. And uh, so I don't know. I mean, it was, I felt like it got, it, 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 people got away from the message, which was that clearly we can see over a long run that we're having a, you know, almost levels of wealth inequality that are back to almost sort of feudal levels in some way. And, yeah. um, and to, to your point, if, if, if uh, in a long run debasing a currency, you know, allows you to amass power with a very number, small number of people who have the wealth, does it matter whether that wealth is nominally a, you're a billionaire or you have 3 billion or you have 10 billion? Because from your quality of life, like if you have a billion dollars, if, if you go to 2 billion, does your quality of life really change at all? At a point, your quality of life, only the, the, or the, the only quality of life change that happens, I think, when you make that much money is your ability to reduce other people's quality of life, qualities, qualities of life. I, I li- like y- your ability to be like Mark Zuckerberg, buy a waterfront estate in Hawaii and then decide, ah, I don't want neighbors and then like sue them to get their homes so you can bulldoze them and have a bigger yard. Like that's, <laughs> you know, that's kind of what. Right. right? I mean, and it's, yeah, but it's like, and, but, but kind of my point, right? You could do that if you have $2 billion, you can do it if you have five. Like yeah. it doesn't make any difference. You can harass point. all the people you want with $2 billion. Right. <laughs> you and know? So, so to that point, I mean, if, if like in the long run, you know, doing some damage to the monetary value it allows, still allows you in the meantime to sort of accumulate real assets with that and mm-hmm. to accumulate a balance that's so big, it doesn't make a difference whether you deflated it away by 50%, right? Like, yeah. But it does matter to people who only have a small amount. Yes. Okay. So everyone listening, pack the bowl again, rip another one. Because we're going down a rabbit hole here. So I've been rolling around the idea of the government effectively being a social contract in a way or society. Mm-hmm. The, the idea of a social contract, the idea of, yeah, we're all out. We're all in it for ourselves. But here's what we all consider acceptable. And so if you want to talk about like the very first social contract was probably people were getting tired of their friends and relatives getting murdered. And so they decided, yeah, you know what? You might be bigger and stronger or more cunning or whatever, but we're just going to stop murdering people when we want something they have. We're just going to stop murdering. That was like a social contract right there. Okay, we progressed a lot, right? It's gotten a lot more complex. But the ultimate idea of a social contract is that if you are a productive member of society, uh, again, the, what we view in this country, you get up, you go to work, you pay your taxes, you mow your lawn, you know, you do all these things to ultimately keep your area of the community uh, in check, right? Then you ultimately should, at the very least, uh, be able to provide for yourself and not be destitute and starving in old age. And if for some reason you can't work, there should be somebody to provide there. You know, the, the social safety net of failure or the consequence of failure uh, whether by health or by your own consequ- consequences, shouldn't be life-threatening, right? right. Um, and I, I generally think that's a social contract people of all political stripes would agree on, right? Okay, yep. so, so now 
we then need to take a look at how this system is structured in a way that abides by that. And an interesting thing, and this is bizarre because now I am once again taking one of the more conservative candidates I've had on this show and one of the more liberal candidates I've had on this show and making a, a little philosophical quilt of their platforms. But you know, one of the things Jeff Gregory talked about two episodes ago from the Constitution Party, North Carolina, 5th Congressional District, he was somebody who talked about the concept of the fair tax. And so I did some reading into this. And effectively, what it says is that there is a tax on everything of somewhere between 20 and 25%. Um, and with the exception of necessities. So, you know, food, clothing, shelter, right? And if you make below a certain amount, you get a prebate is what they call it, which is effectively mm-hmm. uh, a an amount to cover your consumption or what your average consumption would be. So again, you make below a certain income level, uh, you're going to pay that fair tax, but you're also, you've got a little extra money in your pocket to cover it, right? So the idea, it doesn't matter what it is. You buy a car, 23% tax. You buy a house, 23% tax. You buy a TV, 23% tax. You know, there's just a tax on everything. Now, the thing I'm finding super interesting about that when we combine it with what you're saying about uh, monetary management, about monetary manipulation, about the whole concept of converting energy into capital or converting effectively moving resources, moving energy from one point to the other. So, uh, you know, again, the farmer goes out, uses energy to create the food, uses energy to get money in the bank, uses energy to transport the corn to dipshits who don't know what their job is, uh, namely me. So we so we have that system going on, right? Now, effectively, that means that, again, if I'm Mark Zuckerberg and I've got billions and billions of dollars and I want to buy a $100 million estate, I have to put $25 million of those dollars back in the pot. And so it, I, it and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds to me like that's a great break to this sort of deflationary strategy that the central bank seems to be taking. Or, or asset inflationary. Strategy. Asset inflation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, or I should say, de- sorry, inflationary. The, the, the goal is to avoid deflation. Yeah. But it seems like that's a great inflationary break because ultimately, if I'm, if for some reason the system is geared in a way where uh, my, my uh, output, my output in terms of energy is no longer related to my income, then that, cons- that extra consumption I might do is going to ultimately feed back into the pot. Yeah. And, am I wrong? No, I don't, I don't disagree. I've, I've and, long been an advocate for that, like a kind of a flat tax plus a fair tax kind of thing. Like yeah. that all forms of income, regardless of whether you, cause we also have beneficiary, you know, you get, you benefit from, you know, getting your income in terms of capital gains on assets versus by getting, earning it. Right. Yeah. Um, you have a benefit from if you were to do that inside a partnership versus if you're doing that totally. So there's a lot of things that, that tend to then favor the people who already have an awful lot of money in terms of the rate of tax that they'll pay. Now I get the argument that like, Oh, but they're still paying so much more in terms of dollars. Like I totally get that. Like I, I get, it. but, but the point is to make it, if you really to make it more naturally, progressive taxation. I'm not talking progressive in the term of Democrats or something. I just mean, if you wanted to make it a naturally progressive tax, the best way to do it would be to tax everything 
at the same rate from an income perspective, right? Yep. And then tax your consumption at a VAT or a fair tax with some, again, with some sort of prebate to your point to those who, um, who create a hardship. That would make it sort of naturally tilted or pro- in a pro- more progressive fashion. And that's recoupling in a lot of ways. I'm using the word coupling a lot. That's recoupling. We're going to use it anyway. We're, it's, and that's recoupling the relationship between money and energy. Because now some of that energy that's used to create that TV is going back. It's being removed from the economy effectively. Whatever money the central banks are printing is ultimately going to go back into the government pot. We still, of course, there's still, I think, the philosophical question of, well, now the government has control over that money. But in an ideal scenario, that government, we're still at a point where it's somewhat responsive to the people. You know, even today, like I'll yes bitch. And, yeah, yes and no. And partly to your point, like it would, it would somewhat go back. Like, yes, it would increase the government, but it also would probably, and again, maybe this is a, a, it's a short-term GDP hit. It shifts the time preference for money, right? So it would actually increase probably savings rates generally because people would be less inclined to spend as much, right? So at the margin. Boom. So, like, so you actually, so yes, the government would sort of have quote more money that they'd be spending that that is true, but I mean let's uh, they're already running they're already spending more than they have so <laughs> let's start yes. with that um let's start with that we're running as I said we're gonna run over twenty percent deficit this year so um but also you could start to think of it in terms of like it actually incents people to save more and sort of forcing them to consume because like we've actually gone the other way right we're sort of like by driving down almost a penalty on savers in some way while benefiting like you know while benefiting people who own assets like it's gone you've actually sort of forced people to either a take more risk or b like not to to consume in the near term because there's no even incentive them to because there's no real um benefit to savings because you can't yeah. really, if your savings account is zero interest on it like you can't keep up right like you can't grow that balance other than what you put in it yeah wow all right so I've always, I'll throw this out there too, and we've kind of gone past this, but I've always said the, the only difference between America's system and China's system right now is we have an extra Politburo. You know, we effectively have, where China has their one communist party and they kind of ultimately dictate the political dialogue by consensus within the party. We just have two, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Right. So, so I think we've, that's, that's, a, a, that's a, that's an earful. The only so, thing we didn't cover that we need to do before we go is to take yes. two minutes for each of us to give a prediction for the back half of 20 as to something that hasn't, uh, occurred yet, at, at least as of when this, uh, is recorded that, um, that could still, uh, unfold for us. That would be, uh, Yeah. I'm going to tee this up for everyone listening. So um, the monkey and I, again, had a conversation ahead of recording this. And what we were complaining about is the fact that we plan these out, we record them, and then something monumental happens in between the day we record them, uh, the day we record the episode and the release date. So it's released on Thursday. Typically, we're recording like Sunday, Saturday-ish. So within those four days, normal environment, uh, that's safe. 2020, absolutely not. So with that out of the way, we are going to make a prediction for what the most likely, most terrible thing to happen between now and then is going to be. All right, you go first. <laughs> um, so I was going to make a joke and say airborne herpes. 
I was going to say airborne herpes because I couldn't, I was just trying to think like, what's the most, like, what's the most terrible, but potentially like, you know, realistic thing that could happen. That was my thing. I, I will actually say, um, protesters have already torn down statues of Thomas Jefferson, Ulysses S. Grant, and George Washington. Uh, my general feeling is that if that you should have done something to to advance the cause of liberty to have a statue and and that there that we and at the same time you can't have a modern day litmus test for people you celebrate so i feel like george washington thomas jefferson were slave owners they were not perfect um on the same token they were responsible for creating the phrase all men are created equal and ultimately creating a framework that allowed us to question the institution of slavery, which throughout history had never been questioned. You know, it was the, they, they allowed, they created that framework. So for that, I think I, I understand people's feelings against them, but I also feel like you, you need to, uh, I think, I, I, I think we could say slavery is the problem today, but then it could be sexism. And let's face it, everybody prior to what there's no prior to, you know, there's no prior, <laughs> like everybody we, everybody we have celebrated is sexist in some way. So, so that's my feeling tough, tough position. But what I feel like is there's going to be some statue torn down for somebody who had nothing to do with like Ben Franklin or like Thomas Edison or something like that. You know, yeah. like yeah, 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 that's yeah. my feeling. A statue gets torn down of somebody because Ulysses S. Grant, I mean, like, look, the the guy the guy he fought for the union like give yeah. me a, you know like come on like let's christopher columbus is okay he wasn't american never set foot in america and spain paid for the trip but uh you know ulysses i mean come on like that's yeah, a, no, it, it is reaching the level of absurdity right yes. um so what do you got uh so I don't know that it's going to happen between now and whenever you're releasing this next thursday or something but I do I it, my my worst nightmare is that uh, school is going to be canceled for the fall, and oh. that with, with the rise in this stuff, like um, I'm going to get an update from you know the the superintendent that we're 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 going to be homeschooling for the for the rest of the year, uh, well into 2020, um, into 2021, and I'm I, I'm not uh, oh god <laughs> we 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 have been in the you know roll the television into the classroom phase of homeschooling since about like April 30th. So why don't we watch a movie? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like educational. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be, I, I, my prediction over the long term is you are going to see this performance gap for people who are in certain grades during this period. And I'm concerned, you know, one of my kids is a third grader, probably most important, um, grade in between in K to 12 or one of the most. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm concerned. I'm really concerned. Um, in the meantime, I think in the next week, Trump's going to go to war with the nation's teenagers, uh, because apparently they punked his rally last night by buying up all the tickets and, or, or reserving all the tickets. And then no oh, one that's hysterical. Really 
That's hysterical. As, as of the news reports I read this morning, apparently that was what the, that despite the cause say the, the, you know, there's going to be millions of people who have pre-reserved all the seats. And then it was like half empty because it was people online just going on and reserving them and then not showing up. Now that's funny. That's funny. Um, that's just funny no matter what. I, yeah. That's not even an anti-Trump statement. That's just that's just funny to me for all these bloviating oh, politicians. I, I just love when, when something like that happens because it's just like you just got taken down a peg. Just by, <laughs> so, by, by somebody. <laughs> by a bunch of like, teenagers. By somebody without a job. I should probably start off with a disclaimer that no marijuana was consumed in the creation of this episode. Investors and banks like to put their money where they'll see returns, and if businesses are growing, they keep lending. When businesses meet demand, growth slows, investors put their money where they can see better or safer returns, and the economy goes into recession. Over the last two recessions, we've done an end run around the quest for efficiency by throwing large amounts of fiscal stimulus into the economy to encourage lending. And while there are zero economists who disagree with the goal of the stimulus in 2008 or the more recent one this year, the benefits have largely gone to shareholders and those who have money in stock, while people who make their income trading time for money, that is everyday workers, have seen their wages stagnate, but have been able to float their standard of living through easy access to credit. And now I don't think the goal of American capitalism was to build the ideal consumer nor do I think there's liberty in an economic system where the average worker doesn't have cash for basic emergencies, but can get an interest-free credit card to finance a television. And there's an imbalance in the system. And the best way to rectify an imbalance is to move funds from where that imbalance exists. And as I mentioned in the episode, one way would be a consumption tax, similar to the fair tax Jeff Gregory mentioned in episode 45. Now, last note, I expressed some regret that the statues of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were torn down. I'm also in a position where neither own people who look like me as property. I do truly feel, despite their faults, the framework they created allowed us to have conversations about emancipation, the right for women to vote, gay rights, and the civil rights movement. And I think most folks who have statues would fail a modern day litmus test. So we have to ask the question, did they advance the cause of freedom despite their faults? I'm open to feedback on this. So feel free to tell me on Twitter, Facebook, or on YDHTY.com. Next week, we have Christian Anoha, the son of Nigerian immigrants who's running to be the Republican nominee in New Jersey's 6th Congressional District, a district that has been held by the Democratic Party since 1983. If he were running in any other year but 2020, his victory might actually surprise people, but you know. Now, we talk about his path to the Republican Party, his current view on their stance on immigration and race, and as with all things, people seem crazy until you learn how they got to where they are. So I hope you'll join me. It was a great conversation. As always, theme music by Kvelertak. YDHTY is produced by the Snake Killer, the big Gino Jason Putney in North. If it were any more human, it'd be a flood cackalaka. Until the next, this is Dan Sally, going to do something else. <laughs> <laughs>